to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 39, Lex, recorded November 14th. 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Late Bloomer, and our outro is Grow Old or Don't. In corrections today, I want to apologize for being a bit salty in describing some of the players and coaches on the Montreal Canadiens from episode 36, Nedry. I know that being a sports fan sometimes calls for jeering and heckling the opposition, that's not quite the energy I want to be putting out there in the world, so I don't expect that's something I'll be doing again, but it was still a cool Leafs game. I hope you guys checked out the link. <laughs> in episode 30, Control, with doctors Matthew Bortz and Adam Pritchard, we got into the subject of Colovasaurus being in some editions of the novel and wondering why on earth that would be. My latest theory was that Colovasaurus appeared in a 1991 Random Century Group 20 publication, which had been licensed to publish in England, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. But I was wrong. <laughs> Dr. Pritchard has confirmed that his mysterious Colovasaurus edition is an all-American publication, so the mystery continues. In episode 36, Nedry, I couldn't recall the exact verbatim text in a Farside comic, but I've looked it up, and it is this. Quote, Now this end is called the Thagomizer after the late Thag Simmons, and it features a caveman pointing at a slide of a Stegosaurus tail-covered in spikes in front of a classroom of cavemen, and it's hilarious. And while I'm at this, I'd like to point out that, A, I got to consider my Farside collection a, quote, reference library, and I dug back in time to find my old Farside collections, and B, and despite what Wikipedia credits this comment as being published in 1982, maybe it was, like in a daily newspaper at some point, way back in history, if you want to find it in one of the Farside collections, you must turn to In Search of the Farside, first printed in July 1984. You can find the panel on page 9. It was subsequently featured in the Farside Gallery from November 1984 on page 127. Find it there. Dinosaur News. As introduced in episode 34, The Main Road, and the astonishing new paper that suggests that the missing stem lineage of Ornithischians in the late Triassic is found to be the Silosaurid sister group to Dinosauria, I thought, let's take a closer look at what this sister group of dinosauromorphs are especially if they're going to be included in the Dinosaur Club. So back in 2010, in the journal Nature, the new Dinosauromorph family, which we learned may be actually the direct ancestors of Ornithischians, was named Silosauridae. At that point, they didn't realize they were naming a very probable lineage of dinosaur, but rather a sister group very similar, but not actually related to Dinosauria. Quote, The early evolutionary history of Ornithodira, the avian line of archaeosaurs, has hitherto, as of 2010, been documented by incomplete or unusually specialized forms like pterosaurs and silosaurs, says the abstract. It continues, quote, Recently, a variety of silosaurus-like taxa have been reported from the Triassic period of both Gondwana, the continent in the southern hemisphere 200 million years ago, and Laurasia, the continent in the northern hemisphere 200 million years ago. But their relationships to each other and to dinosaurs remains a subject of debate, says the paper again from 12 years ago. The paper reported on a new avian line archosaur from the Middle Triassic of Tanzania. They called Azillosaurus Kongwei, and they placed it in a new family, Silosauridae, which they went on to describe as a group that were, quote, diverse and had a wide distribution by the late Triassic, with a novel ornithodiron bowel plan, including leaf-shaped teeth, a beak-like lower jaw, long gracile limbs, and a quadrupedal stance. So that's a description of your silosaurs. 
As a reference, the term bow plan is a generalized structural body plan that characterizes a group of organisms and especially a major taxon, or generally speaking, it's like the simple plan upon which a family then specializes from. It's like a seed or a starting point, and if you were looking at the very earliest of dinosaurs, this is where you'd find a bow plan. When animals have not deviated from the original plan especially much, that's commonly referred to as basal, and when they deviate from that plan quite a bit, it's referred to as derived. The paper continues to say that their analysis shows that Silosaurids, Ornithischians, and Sauropodomorphs evolved independently from a plesiomorphic carnivorous form, an avian line archosaur also known as an ornithodiron. The oldest animal in this family is the animal described in this paper in 2010, the Azalosaurus, which, quote, demonstrates the antiquity of both Ornithodira and the dinosaurian lineage. There is an that there is an avian line archosaur lineage implies that there is another archosaur lineage, and there is. It's the crocodilian line called the Pseudosuchia. In any case, there were some strange critters in these, in these groups, the archosaurs, who deviated into two major lineages, one terminating in today's crocodiles and the other into today's birds, which is pretty crazy. The bird-ending family tree is the Ornithodirons, and early in that family we get the Silosaurids, and today... Those silosaurids are being argued to be in the same gene pool from which ornithischians derived from. And this is also why when people say that the, the closest living relatives of dinosaurs today are birds and crocodiles, this is the, the, what they're talking about, the archosaur lineage. So that said, back in 2010, as this clay was being introduced, the authors were firm on their opinion that silosaurids were not dinosaurs but deserved their own family. Silosaurids were distinct from other ornithodirons because they possessed a unique combination of character states, including distinct features on their occipital bones, their femora, and their hip sockets. But they weren't yet what is traditionally considered a dinosaur. They lacked classical dinosaurian character states like those in true dinosaur hip sockets, like their humerus, and another strange measurements on dinosaur bones that you don't find on silosaurids. Quote, thus features present in Silosaurus, such as the ornithischian-like dentition and a theropod-like ankle, represent independent acquisitions, or homeoplasties, and are not synapomorphies shared with dinosauria because these features are not present in the most basal members of Silosauridae. That's not what's being argued now, though. Now, it is believed that Silosaurids are the earliest ornithischian dinosaurs, and that is cool. Uh, the second story we got here, also going back to episode 34 of the main road, we were introduced to the amphibian visual cortex of Tyrannosaurus that meant that Dr. Alan Grant could hide from the big wrecks by remaining still. The novel says that the Tyrannosaur tracks its prey based on movement, and if you don't move, you are invisible. We know this isn't true today, and I found the paper that refutes this about as strongly as can be. Published in 2008, the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology uh, published the article Binocular Vision in Theropod Dinosaurs, aimed to investigate what a theropod's vision might be like. With sculpted life re reconstructions of seven theropod heads and techniques adopted from ophthalmolic field parametry, the authors reconstructed, measured, calculated, and evaluated the vision of a few theropods, including Allosaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, Despletosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Nanotyrannus, Velociraptor, and Truodon. Allosaurus and Cucurodontosaurus were said to be restricted to binocular vision to a region only approximately 20 degrees wide, similar to modern crocodiles, for example. The Despletosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Nanotyrannus, Velociraptor, and Truodon offered a broader binocular field between 45 and 60 degrees in width, similar to modern raptorial birds. They compared how these visual fields influenced a carnivore's predatory style, either ambush or pursuit and what cranial adaptations which enhance binocular vision might suggest. Quote, the progressive increase in frontal vision in the Tyrannosaurids culminates in broader binocular overlap than that of a modern hawk, 
says the paper, which is a conclusion that they based on modern reptilian and avian models. The most interesting to me, and I had to laugh at this, is that the paper sort of has a go at Dr. Jack Horner's scavenger-based Tyrannosaurus theory. Quote, doubt has been cast on the predatory capability of Tyrannosaurus rex, says the paper, and then it name-checks Horner's three papers from 1993, 1994, and 1997, and specifically notes that the eyes were characterized as, quote, beady, and thereby inappropriate for detecting distant prey. And while these papers were yet to be published at the time of Jurassic Park in 1990, it's possible that this unpublished sentiment may have been circulating at the time, and thus Crichton adopted it into his narrative. However, this paper, as I said, name-checks Horner three times, and they specifically call attention to the characterization of its eye being beady and therefore unfit for pursuit predation, and then does the math and concludes, quote, It would seem most parsimonious to conclude that the Salurosaurus included in this study all achieved functional stereopsis and all used the capability for spatially demanding tasks. And that's a sciencey way of saying, given that the skulls had adapted for improved vision as the animals evolved, it was suggested they were using their vision for spatially demanding tasks, also known to carnivores as hunting, not scavenging. And then the paper ends with a final perfunctory little note that I can't help but think was a final poke at... Uh, the scavenging Tyrannosaurus argument, quote, in particular, due to its great scale and broad frontal vision, Tyrannosaurus rex, of all sighted observers to have ever lived, might have experienced the most spectacular view of the three-dimensional world. The end. <laughs> all right, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. If you're all set, I'm ready. You ready to go? Yeah, let's rock and roll. <laughs> Okay, uh, today my, my special guest is Tom Fishenden, who's a content creator for the Jurassic community and who has appeared on the Jurassic Park podcast in his own segment called the Innovation Center and he's got the Dino Watch podcast and he, where they separate fact from fiction reliving the stories of dinosaur encounters in the wild. How are you doing today, Tom? Yeah, I am good, thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. It's very surreal hearing somebody read out the Dino Watch description I wrote <laughs> back to me. I wasn't quite ready for how much that broke the fourth wall for me, but yeah, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing terrific, thank you. Um, so yeah. you'll remember this. Tom and I met back in 1995 when we were both driving a, on a game trail on Isla Sorna, and we were surprised by a buck tyrannosaur who spotted us, walked to the front of our car, squatted down onto yeah. the hood, and wriggled its hips back and forth in a quick motion, making a metal creak. And then it stood up again, making the car spring back up, leaving behind a pungent white paste from its anal scent glands. Uh, I recall you'd brought a series of I'm solvents. Still not over those glands. <laughs> you'd brought solvents to clean things, but you were not prepared for dino musk. Uh, it's been many years since then. Are you more prepared to clean dino musk in your travels today? I think so. I've, <laughs> I've had a few instances, you know. I've, I've had this time where I was hiding underneath a jeep and somebody tried to push me out and get a rex to eat me. But mm -hmm. apart from that, I'm all good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, speaking of uh, world travels, uh, I am in Ontario in, in Canada. Where are you located today? I am in Kent in the United Kingdom, so I am about an hour outside of London. All right, is that north or west or south or? It is south. Okay. okay. Southeast England. Right on. So that's famously the land of the iguanodons. Does England just love the iguanodons? Are they the best? <laughs> I mean, they they are quite cool, and there is a town in Kent that actually has the iguanodon on its coat of arms. Oh yeah. So. It's the only place in the UK that has a dinosaur on its coat of arms. So clearly they are very special to us here in the southeast. So when I was just little, um, England is also home to one of my favorites, uh, favorite dinosaurs when I was growing up, and that's the Baryonyx, because 
First yeah. of all, it was new and it was cool at the time, and it also had two Y's and an X in the name, which is like if you're in grade two, that's hot. <laughs> X's and yeah. Y's in, in a word is that's a special word, so it was already a winner there. And yeah, Baryonyx yeah. continues to be awesome. It appeared in the UK in the Dino Tracker marketing as well, so clearly some consistency across the board there as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not just uh, me that thought it's good because it made it into the Fallen Kingdom film, which was kind of fun. We get to see it, and it I guess we didn't really get that. I mean, what's special about it is it, the, these fancy forearms where it's got these big claws on the hand, and yeah. uh, I don't feel like that got to reveal itself uh, as much as it might have. Yeah. Which is too bad. But I feel like that would be better for an R-rated novel where you could do some do some serious damage with those things. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to recall. I know we've seen the raptors digging to try and get underneath um, yeah. uh, the shed wall. I'm trying to recall if we saw the the spinosaur digging or not. But uh, I certainly know. I feel having like it did at some point. I don't recall either. But certainly the baryonyx could have at least scratched away at something. <laughs> would have been fun. Yeah. The only liquid it got to swim in was apparently molten magma, so that was interesting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, so if you're south of London, that means that you're even a little bit closer to the Isle of Wight, which would be a neat place to visit. What's a good time of year to go and visit the Isle of Wight? I'd probably say over the spring and the summer months, mm-hmm. um, just because I've actually been there, and you have... I can't remember the name of the palace that's on the island... But there's a lot of history to do with it and the people who live there owning lemurs. <laughs> and it's just a, a really interesting place to go and explore and it's quite scenic as well. So definitely the spring or the summer when you have longer days, you can get out and make the most of it and the most of being outdoors as well. Oh, wow. Do they still have lemurs over there? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, I remember we went over there when I was a kid and I got a cuddly lemur, but I can't remember if I saw a real one. I have a feeling it was like a house-trained lemur, and the name that's coming to mind is Longy, but I can't <laughs> remember if that's actually it or not, but I'm sure there was a lemur that lived in a house on the Isle of Wight. Interesting. So I found you uh, to be a guest because you were misguided enough to follow my Twitter account. And uh, with a handle like Tom Jurassic, I was compelled to think, surely I can sucker this guy into coming on my show at some And then time. you spoke to me and you were like, he doesn't know anything about Jurassic Park. <laughs> Why am I even talking to him? Uh, and so what's more fun is, is uh, how engaged with the, the you know your fandom into the Jurassic Park franchise that you are when I when I looked into that. And maybe we could start off with, you know, uh, you know what came first for you when, you when it came to engaging with uh with the, with the you know intellectual properties was it the film was it yeah. the novel i think i read somewhere that you might have been first in, enthralled with it by a video game so i'm i'm gonna <laughs> blow your mind ryan as as the looks probably give away i am a much younger gentleman than i may appear um so i actually got sucked into the franchise through the viral marketing for jurassic world okay um so i was really into Primeval as a kid growing up, which is a British dinosaur TV show that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of got to the end of that. That series got cancelled. And I was like, okay, I want to find something else that's dinosaur related. Uh, it just so happened that Primeval ended around 2014, 2015. And there was this little film called Jurassic World coming mm-hmm. out. So I got absolutely sucked into the marketing. I was studying creative media at the time, so the way they had um, sort of shot specific content for the Isla Nublar website and had structured it as this kind of 
in-universe content created within the boundaries of that resort that InGen had created was mm -hmm. really cool to me. Um, so I got sucked in through that. I did a <laughs> initial segment on the Jurassic Park podcast, and I can't remember what it was about now, but I listened back to it recently, and it... <laughs> If, if you're listening to this, don't go and find it, um, because it's, it's just me essentially calling in and rambling for about 10 minutes about some random topic, and that was it. Um, and then from there, we've just slowly built things up and actually learned how to talk to other people along the way as well. Mm -hmm. That's fun. That's fun. And, uh, and obviously, the Jurassic Park podcast has become a home where you can uh, share some of your, your, your fandom with, with people and, and, yeah. uh, and, do, and engage with it in an important way. So that's been, well, you tell me, how has that been for you? What's it meant to have an outlet in that respect? It's been, it's really awesome. Yeah. I think Brad is so great at letting people just get involved in it and contribute to it and share things. And that's really the same with everyone I've worked with. So I work really closely with Jurassic Collectibles. I upload half of the content on that channel. Um, and again, working with JC behind the scenes, he's really open for anything. Um, and also Tim at Collect Jurassic, who I write articles with every now and then. He's again, really collaborative. And that's what I really like about the Jurassic community is so many of the people who are in it are just genuinely really excited about dinosaurs and really excited about the films mm -hmm. and they want to get involved in content they want to create things i mean it, if you look at the audio drama i'm working on that i'll talk about a little bit later just having people actually say when i put a call out out there yeah i want to come and do some voice acting i know you're not paying for it but that's fine i'll still get involved that kind of enthusiasm and energy from the community is really infectious i think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's um not a small group of people it looks like there's over a dozen people at the jurassic park podcast that are working <laughs> yes. together over there so it, that's a good crew if you're looking to draw support to do something fun <laughs> yeah there's a lot of awesome people over there but i mean even beyond that just generally on twitter there's so many sort of names that will pop up all of the time and it's all the same people interacting and engaging with each other supporting each other's projects and i think that's what's really awesome about this community particularly is the community itself is an outlet mm. because there's so many people making different types of content and sharing it with each other and sharing each other's content that i think is really quite unique to this community mm -hmm. so the audio drama the dino watch podcast feels to me yeah. sort of like um if you haven't read the book, this will sound awful, but like if you've read World War Z, it's awesome. Yes. And it's this interesting yeah. little bits and pieces of stories from all over the world yeah. that show a global catastrophe occurring. Uh, whereas the film, boy, you'd slap me in the face if I said anything like that. But uh, <laughs> um, but instead of zombies, this sounds like it's with dinosaurs. And instead of a novel, it's an audio drama. So, um, I mean, yeah. what, what are the, how far have you got in it? And what are the, what's the dream going forward? What's it going to be? Okay, so, so Dino Watch is sort of a precursor to something else. So Dino Watch was essentially something really fun I wanted to work on where I, I it got close to Dominion launching and usually when there's a film launching, I'll try and work on an extra special piece of content or something that's just really fun for people. And I realized that I hadn't worked on anything and I wanted to do something that was not going to be that intense in terms of the resources I need to achieve it, but would still be quite fun. So I thought about the end of Battle at Big Rock 
and all of the like montages in that of different people going about their lives mm -hmm. and I kind of started thinking what are those people like how has that experience impacted on them and, and what other encounters might they have had and that kind of informed that so we sort of went through we produced a whole season on that it ends with the US Fish and Wildlife Service shutting it down and that was kind of a really fun sort of first attempt at doing a semi-Jurassic audio drama but something that was um, not really properly scripted to any great extent. It didn't require any sound effects or anything like that. It was just really a dive into that world to see what those characters were thinking. Um, and off the back of that, I really enjoyed that. I feel like there's a lot of scope to explore that sort of space of time between Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and Jurassic World Dominion. And there's so much potential for stories in that sort of area of time with these encounters going on. And um, that I've started working on a proper audio drama series that's fully scripted, it's got a full cast, it's got a sort of sound design, it's got its own original score. Um, called Tales from a Jurassic World, which is going to be all about exploring that period of time. Um, so we released a Halloween special earlier in the year, which is um, a little peek at what that series is going to be about. And it's going to follow the US Fish and Wildlife Service as they adapt to dinosaurs in the wild. And it's going to look at some of the encounters they have, what kind of animals are out there, perhaps where did some of the animals from the Lockwood estate auction end up mm -hmm. um, and try and paint a wider picture of that world that I feel a lot of us wanted from Dominion, but we didn't quite get that because of the direction the story went in. So mm -hmm. I'm really keen for this to kind of flesh out that wider world. I think you're entirely right that the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom ended with a montage showing dinosaurs yeah. sort of uh, their first, you know, poking their head out for the first time into the, into the natural world. And then... Was it Battle of Big Rock where at the end of that they had another little montage as well that had a bit yeah. more? And I feel like some of that was in Dominion. Like, did they repurpose some of yeah. that? I think it was there. I think some of it carried over, yeah. And so that was the the hook. They're like, wow, we're going to have a global experience where we're going to see dinosaurs interacting with people in the real world and feeling like that was going to be maybe a greater presence in the film than it was. Yeah, which was too bad because uh, maybe maybe the, the marketing could have you know led us in a more authentic direction as opposed to teasing us yeah. that it was going to be more like that and, and perhaps set our expectations in a, in a different way. Well, I mean, marketing did also say it's the final film, and I think it's very unlikely that it's the final film. Fair enough. Um, so when you're envisioning uh, creating an audio drama and trying to create characters that yeah. have had experiences with real dinosaurs, you must be therefore trying to imagine what uh, perhaps an authentic dinosaur behavior might be. So when you're looking at how to recreate what sort of experiences people may be having with dinosaurs that are interacting with people in a modern world, what are some yeah. of the challenges and what are some of the outcomes that you're, you're hoping to move in? What direction are you hoping yeah. to work with? So it's really interesting. I, I guess it was kind of threefold, which was what are some of the sort of si everyday situations where a dinosaur being there would suddenly make it so much more dramatic? What are somber moments that we experience with animals? So, you know, obviously we share our world with animals. We have an emotional connection with them. And every now and then there will be things like animals having to get put down for different reasons or things like that and how do dinosaurs factor into that equation and what's the emotion there and then also thinking about the wider narrative that's at play so season one is very much about 
picking up in the shadow of fallen kingdom exploring what's happening when those animals are moving out are they migrating is there anything changing about their behavior and then that's something that will sort of build and gradually um expand upon i do i have a free season planned for this so i've properly thought it out and mapped Mm. it all out in terms of what i want to unfold and the goal is very much to paint some of the picture of what's going on in the wider world but also end in the same place where jurassic world dominion ends so there's going to be a lot to do in terms of not just expanding on dinosaurs in the world but also potentially what companies like Biosyn have been up to, what they've been doing in the background, all mm. of those kinds of things as well. So there's going to be lots of different layers to kind of try and interweave in something that still feels digestible as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I could, I'd have like a 90-page script. But I don't <laughs> think anyone would listen to that. <laughs> Over four seasons, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I had some guests on at one point, and we were kind of getting into um, dinosaur behavior in some respects. I think it was shortly after uh, the Apple TV production of Dinosaur Planet, was it, uh, had yeah. come out. And, uh, and we were kind of exploring the more, not just what dinosaurs are, but how dinosaurs might have behaved. And they were very astute in, in their describing that if there's any behavior that you see that's common between a bird and common with uh, a crocodile, that because they are a common ancestor to the dinosaurs, it would be very reasonable to think that those two families of animals share that common ancestry and these common traits, and therefore dinosaurs likely also share those traits, which is very interesting uh, and, and very fun. But in terms of what Crichton did with the novel, many of the analogs that he used to compare dinosaurs to, to the reader was through large mammals. And so there was a lot of comparing yeah. them to horses, to cows, to rhinos, to elephants, to to a leopard and things like that, to to a pig, which was fine because it's relatable. And in terms of making um, making a simile that a reader can re- relate to, to to this foreign object that they cannot see, I guess that works. But it would have been more fun, perhaps more foreign, more alienating to, to actually try and come up with analogs that are reptilian or avian instead. And he does some yeah. bird stuff, less lizard stuff, less, less reptile stuff. The Tyrannosaurus swims like a crocodile, which is interesting. But there's this one scene in particular where Malcolm is observing the velociraptors who attack the, the cage during their tour. And uh, Malcolm is very clear. He says that they're, they're reptilian, but they act like predatory birds. And ultimately, dinosaurs in Jurassic yeah. Park are described as these monstrous hybrid between birds and lizards, which is, which is pretty cool. So it would be interesting to, I mean, if you're basing your new world off of what they, the dinosaurs they had in Fallen Kingdom and that emerged yeah. into Dominion, those are kind of different than what, I guess, Crichton started with in the novel. But it'd be interesting. Cause... Yeah. I'm sort of trying to use this as a little sort of litmus paper test almost to try different genres within it as well. So I'll, I'll, cause I really want to tell you some details, but I also don't want to spoil this. <laughs> So there's one scene, for example, where a herbivore gets caught up in a barbed wire fence. And that's like the big emotional moment of that episode is dealing with the fact that this herbivorous animal has clearly suffered an injury and it's going to die. And it's one of those moments that you might see with cattle, for example, every Mm -hmm. now and then. um, And it's that more emotive moment. But equally, you have a scene in another episode where you have a theropod that just gets really, really angry because somebody has tried to hurt it and it's not quite worked out. And so it's then behaving in that more predatory manner. And what I'm trying to sort of juggle with is tonally what could Jurassic look like if it was to go in different directions. So if you had it in that more 
sort of harmonious direction what would that look like equally what would it look like if it was more horror and you have somebody in an isolated location being hunted by a predator Mm -hmm. sort of trying to balance all of those different things which i feel like is perhaps more informed by the direction i feel trevorrow was setting at the end of dominion than necessarily the novels in the sense that that end monologue does show us a lot of different scenarios where those dinosaurs are um or in the case of the quetzalcoatlus where the pterosaurs are um mm. and sort of trying to build out on that and what that looks like as well that's interesting i was just looking at a paper on as dark and pterosaurs they, they were saying that basically just the way their head is shaped and because how their body and, and their uh, flight plans would be affected, that for them to fly around and catch things out of the sky seemed unlikely. And so therefore that they, the larger versions of those uh, types of pterosaurs would have been terrestrial stalkers. They would walk around yeah. and pluck things out of the ground, which I thought is even scarier because the, the, obviously they're famously... Um, as you know, would come as large as a giraffe, which is so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and to have something like yeah. that with a, a head that's as long as you know, you you couldn't fit it in a room for it to just be swinging around looking would be it's horrifying. horrifying. Yeah, it? and far I would think that's scarier than I don't know being in an airplane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's so many fascinating opportunities to do stuff. So in your in your in your envisioning, did they, are they much more feathered? Or are they going to be? So I I'm very much sticking with what's pre-established mm-hmm. so one thing that i <laughs> i get a little bee in my bonnet when jurassic just chooses to randomly introduce animals for the sake of it mm-hmm. so, so i've kind of started this with the understanding that whatever's on the islands is what i can work with now i've expanded that a little bit to include camp cretaceous because camp cretaceous does introduce some interesting animals Mm -hmm. but i very very much said to myself that's it these are the in-gen animals um and so therefore they might not necessarily behave in a scientifically accurate manner but that's because it is how they're depicted on the screen. So it's taking exactly those animals as we already know them from the screen and dropping them into new scenarios. What I haven't quite decided is how I'm going to approach that in later seasons, because obviously Biosyn created some animals like Moros Intrepidus, and we don't actually see how that behaves in the film. So Mm. maybe it does behave in more of a scientifically accurate manner. Same with the Pyroraptor. Um, So those are sort of all ideas I'm juggling. I've not quite decided what that's going to look mm-hmm. like yet. That's very interesting. I think that there is a, a precedent set in the film canon that dinosaurs yeah. can be behaviorally influenced in that yeah. um, the Indominus Rex was obviously very carefully constructed to be uh, psychopathic because it was raised that way. It had no familial yeah. relations with anyone. Uh, they're very clear about saying that you know the only interaction it has with anybody on how to get food is through a crane out of the sky, and um, so it comes out doesn't know where it belongs, and so it was created to be like that. I know that in the Lost World, the novel that um, the raptors were described as being, they didn't have generational knowledge that the infants were yeah. grown up like wild kids, and they didn't have parents giving them a pecking order, didn't giving them a, a sense of family or unit or how to react or interact with one another. They were all instinct, and it wasn't all good. And so they were more feral than necessarily wild, which is interesting. Yeah. And so those raptors are another evidence that uh, that the behavior could be influenced by, by factors. So that could be a very interesting thing to explore. How could you make maybe a herbivore more uh, disgruntled, you know, untrustworthy of people and therefore more dangerous? Or how could you perhaps uh, domesticate 
uh, a, a theropod that you know once it has food maybe it's not maybe it's not eager to be rapacious in its pursuit of others that, that's very interesting so you can like a, a chicken or a, a wild chicken would be pretty like even in the barnyard they're pretty tough and they're yeah. uh, you know three pounds but you can get them to be eaten out of your hand without too much trouble that's interesting stuff it is isn't it and it is that wider question about i think nature versus nurture and also our relationship with nature more broadly and i feel like that's what dominion especially really opened the door on and then it's kind of left it as okay now you can interpret this how you want mm -hmm. but it's like that closing shot of the mosasaurus next to the blue whale those kinds of things i'm sure would be happening and these are animals that are learning to coexist with animals that weren't around when they existed so it's a whole new precedent and that's what's so cool is yes you need to keep it grounded in actual scientific behavior to some extent but there's also a lot of unknown territory there that you can really expand on and explore mm -hmm. um and that's certainly where i hope the franchise goes in the future as well because i think there's a lot of interesting parallels that they could explore with the world as it is currently as well mm -hmm. so what's your interpretation then on the lysine contingency was that going to i think so i <laughs> i i love the idea of it i don't know how i would incorporate <laughs> it and i i feel like they've kind of so I have a feeling it was originally going to be a part of Dominion somehow because I know they said they rewrote some of it due to the pandemic. So I wonder if originally there was this massive infection going around that was the lysine contingency and they decided it wasn't a good idea to do that after a pandemic and so they took it out. But I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea. I do feel like if these animals are born in the wild especially then perhaps the contingency isn't going to have the effect it would have done so obviously the generations from nublar are likely still going to have that problem but if they've had the chance to actually breed before the deficiency has kicked in perhaps their mm. offspring are going to survive so there's all sorts of again interesting minutiae that i feel they could really get into with that mm -hmm. i think that the stock of animals at jurassic world that were bred and put into place post uh, the incident <laughs> yeah. in 93, that they would probably be bred exactly how they want them, as opposed to yeah. contingent to, upon lysine, extra lysine or not. So I'm sure that those are all out of canon. In the inter well, how many animals were supposed to be from the original park that were in the films? I think the Tyrannosaur was supposed it's to be. It's a good question. And maybe I, the I, Brachiosaur? I'm sure they said somewhere the Brachiosaur that we see burning is yeah. from the original film as well, so... So I, I, all I've ever heard, of, I think, is those are the two that are supposed to be original yeah. 93 years. But oh well. They never did kill off the Spinosaur, did they? Well, it's interesting. So there, there is a marketing post out there that's from the Jurassic World release time that says that the skeleton of the Spinosaurus on Main Street is from Jurassic Park 3, but they've never referenced it again. So I wonder if they've very quickly decided to wreck on that. Mm. I think I don't know. I, I don't. I, the people hated the spinosaur. Seems like an over exaggeration. I think people liked the spinosaur. They just didn't like yeah. losing tyrannosaur. That's all. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Um, I think the tyrann. The uh, both of them are cool. I mean, the spinosaurus could easily factor into some really interesting stories as well because you have an animal that can hunt viciously on land and can then mm -hmm. if you're going by modern adaptions also swim as well so what's not terrifying about that mm -hmm. yeah from what i understand in terms of fossil record in terms of biospheres that they've been able to 
put together that everything, other things they find, just because of the way that de depositional rock formations form, but basically every known species is, appears to be a, from a coastal environment, that they were either on the shore yeah. of an inland sea or on, a, on an ocean coast or something. They were all coastal animals. You don't find the animals in uh, fluvial deposits and in rock formations from uh, depositions up in the mountains because uh, there is none of that up there. <laughs> And so yeah. there's, there are entire biospheres that are, will never be, will, haven't been fossilized in a way that we've been able to find them. So, or we, I mean, they have. But, so, yeah, all of our critters should be near water at some point, but not by a big river. Imagine the Mississippi River would be a very popular spot, the Colorado River. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's where they would get to, right? And there'd be a lot of room there. I yeah, mean, exactly. Maybe they <laughs> stay out of the Grand Canyon. That's a lot of falling down if you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's off limits. <laughs> they, they'd learn. All right, so a big part of uh, being a fan of something is entering into that creative space with it. And I think it's probably why professional sports have such strong followings is because you can play the sport too. You can kind of embody what it's like to be the people you look up to. Yeah. And there's empathy and a connection and maybe a catharsis to creatively engaging with your fandom that's really fun. And uh, certainly if your team loses, you can imagine them winning instead. Or when a movie ends, you can imagine what the world moving on afterwards and um, something disappoints you, you can imagine a parallel universe where a different decision was made more to your satisfaction. Yeah. And to, pre pr to me, primarily engaging with, with uh, things that I really liked uh, came in the form of drawing. So I would, I would draw dinosaurs as much as I could. In some respects, uh, engaging with writing, trying to explore new worlds and stuff like that when you're inspired. And then... Um, now it's obviously manifesting in a podcast form, um, but it's spending time in that creative space with the things you love that's very engaging and it's very rewarding. And some people do it through singing, <laughs> you know, and through acting or playing an instrument. There's so many ways to, to meet the things that you love halfway. What have been some of the rewards that have come through, through your expression of fandom and uh, what are some of the different ways beyond podcasting that it might manifest? Yeah, so I, I think in terms of the rewards, I've been really lucky. I mean... I've got to go to a couple of really awesome events and things, but I think the the biggest thing that has been the reward from sort of engaging in the community is the fact that I've made so many friends in this community and there's so many awesome people in this community. I mean, when I was 18, I literally flew out to Pittsburgh on my own and I had never been on a plane before, never gone to another country. And I went out to Pittsburgh to go to a friend's wedding because it was Jurassic themed, got to hang out with a bunch of community members and it was just really, really awesome. So I think that's the, the biggest reward is always the people that you connect with and the fact that there's so many awesome people with that shared passion. And I, I'm just so grateful that so many people who I met through this community and are really, really good friends that I talk to every day um, and are definitely more than just other Jurassic fans there very much a part of my close circle, I would say. <laughs> um, and in terms of other mediums to get creative, so obviously there's writing um, and producing audio dramas, doing podcasts like we've spoken about, but also I really enjoy working on product reviews um, on Jurassic collectibles, taking a closer look at the different Jurassic products, breaking them down, getting hands-on with things. I really enjoy that. And I really enjoy photography as well. Um, and I think for me, Jurassic is a medium, especially with all the toys that just allows me to continue to practice that creatively. So I always used to want to go into primarily filmography and the job I do now, although I work in marketing, I don't get to use as many of those skills as I'd like all of the time. 
So it's really nice to have, I suppose, a medium that lets me continue to connect with those skills and continue to use them and create something fun that I can then share with people that's going to resonate with them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And also it's an excuse to just embrace my inner child and play (laughs) with toys most weekends, which is great. Yeah. And I've seen people in the Jurassic community, they're into like um, the cosplay, a lot of fun things you see out there. Uh, certainly there's been really interesting comic books yeah it's, it, the video reviews are always kind of fun but there's so many so many different ways that people are, are doing new things and it's all kind of grown out of this fascination and inspiration that that comes from seeing yeah. something as profound in, in in Jurassic Park that did a world building that created a real space a real like space anyhow <laughs> a believable space yeah. that people can hop in and uh, and spend a lot of time wondering about and imagining about what a good spot We're lucky that it's so immersive and so grounded. And I think that's that's maybe where less is more comes in a little bit because we only have six films. We have Camp Cretaceous. We have a couple of video games, but a lot of it is still up to our imagination. And that's quite captivating. I'm trying to recall. I think it's like uh, in the Marvel Universe and in the DC Comics Universe, maybe others, like they've been around for so long and they've done it all that they they had to tear it all down and say, let's reboot everything. (laughs) I'm just waiting for Jurassic World Infinity Saga to begin. That's really what I'm looking forward to. Maybe 500 issues of X Men is too many. To appear on site B. (laughs) So the chapter I'm covering in this episode is going to be about the character. It's called Lex, and it's when Lex uh, climbs out of a a storm drain and she reappears to find Tim and Alan, and uh, it's a neat moment. Uh, And I think that you know Lex is nobody's favorite character, rightly so. She's kind of an obnoxious little kid. Uh, in the book, anyhow, in the movie, she gets to be a hacker. She's principled yeah. in a way, like she, you know, whether you agree or disagree, she's a vegetarian and she she stands by that. So we know that she has some convictions. In the in the film, they really were able to build a Lex Murphy who who was a great contributor to what was going on. She saved the day. She was able to get the systems back up and running. Why do you suppose that a, a character like Lex couldn't have been more viable in a in an expanded universe? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and to be honest with you, I don't see why she couldn't be. Yeah. I mean, Le- Lex and Tim are going to have a lot of experience from that sort of childhood perspective of not only being on Jurassic Park, but then growing up around John Hammond. Mm. They're going to know a lot of the internal operations that would have gone on at InGen. I'm sure they're familiar with Benjamin Lockwood and possibly Charlotte Lockwood. So they would have known a lot of that internal structure that's there i suppose but i guess it boils down to perhaps their characters wanting to leave that behind them because you know some people when they experience trauma that is what will make them and that's then what will guide them forwards but equally some people want to leave that behind so i can kind of see either argument really yeah you only had to sneeze um four liters of uh, masticated vegetation onto me once and then i don't want to (laughs) be near masticated vegetation again so yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. She, but she could have uh, be as far away from it as possible. Uh, she could have been uh, a programmer with the Masrani uh, Corporation. That could have been fun yeah. if she was doing that. She might have worked with Claire in her dinosaur sanctuary project. Yeah. That could have been a neat spot for her. Or she could have been like that. You know, I don't want to call Greenpeace or PETA terrorists, but um, yeah. activists of a yeah paralegal nature <laughs> that, yeah. uh, uh, who do who do uh, aggressive things to to uh, 
uh, for dinosaur justice. Uh, it could be it could be a neat spot for for a character like Lance. Maybe she joined Biosyn because she thought they were going to do things properly, unlike her grandfather's company. She would have made for a very interesting. What do they call it when you uh, a whistleblower? She could have made yeah. for a very interesting whistleblower where she's working there, believing in the system, but then realizes this guy is bananas yeah. and uh <laughs> and uh and then yeah she could have been the the signal that which draws people in or something like that it could have been a very good spot although i think his whole motif was that he had a bunch of youngsters who were very impressionable wasn't that the, the yeah. case that dodson was a manipulative cult leader in a way <laughs> yeah he he was a manipulative cult leader who always needed his protein bars yes i was hearing that somebody that uh, maybe his protein bars were not good and that they were actually causing his quirky dementia in a way that... <laughs> Maybe he had a lysine deficiency. And there that's is. what was in the protein bars. It was just lysine. It was crunchy. <laughs> 80 grams of lysine. <laughs> that's, that's all it was. <laughs> well, and the Dilophosaurus were just trying to do what they get what they need. Exactly. <laughs> so filling in that space of um, what goes on between... Fallen Kingdom and Battle of Big Rock and Dominion is an interesting spot. But yeah. you were also interested to say, what well, what might be the future of uh, a franchise which continues to rake in billions no matter what? Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna say, man, we don't need those billions, you know, next time. So obviously, the, it's going to be very tempting to, <laughs> to produce another one. We had to wait like more than ten years between three and World uh, to even get an announcement that they were going to make more films and then they presented us with a trilogy which is nice of yeah. them over under what do you think will it be 10 years before we hear again that they're releasing a two-hour film i don't think they're gonna want to let it go <laughs> since it's been so financially successful um and we know universal's track record with fast and the furious um but <laughs> i'm very curious to see how they approach it and i hope they approach it from the continued standpoint of less is more because actually if yeah. we Go from here, we're just telling the occasional story of different areas of this world um, and how things are affected. I think that's going to give it a lot more sustainability in terms of its storytelling. and It's going to make people want to keep coming back. Um, whereas I feel like if they just want to go purely for big spectacle, big action sequences, then it's going to sort of lose its unique appeal very quickly, I think. I think one mm -hmm. thing that... Crichton always did very well um, was make sure that there was some kind of moral question and moral story underpinning the stories that he wanted to tell, um, which are genuinely quite deeply thought-provoking. So mm. I think Jurassic needs to be handled with that care to continue to live up to its legacy as well. Mm. Um, and I would say I'm very curious to see what they do for Jurassic Park's 30th anniversary mm. and whether that leads to anything, because I Genuinely have no idea, but it's a big anniversary. Mm -hmm. I think you make an interesting observation, and a correct one, that Crichton was very good about, you know, it's the Ark of the Covenant, and you just crack the lid off a little to see how bad it could be, yeah. but then they close it, <laughs> right? They, yeah. They're able to contain the the horrible uh, ramifications of, of whatever the bad science was at the time and, and, and keep it from uh, getting out to the rest of the world. And in Jurassic Park, it's with napalm, but you're right, at the same time, Exploring, what would that be like if, if he, they just took the lid off that thing and, the you know, whatever is inside the Ark of the Covenant decides to turn everybody into skeletons? To let that loose on the world creates a, a very high stakes. <laughs> and it's really hard yeah. to do a global catastrophe from the ground level with, uh, 
you know, uh, a hero and a heroine. <laughs> it's very hard. To, how could one person's actions do it? You know, Independence Day, kind of. You know, uh, we uh, already know that Owen Grady is clearly yeah. the action hero. He can save everyone, right? Yeah, well, to solve the. Yeah, I've figured it out. This is what you do. Tell the world, and then uh, we celebrate our Independence Day from dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> so you feel like they're they're likely to pick up where the story's left off and move further beyond it in sequence to to what's the next? Step? I think they could do. I think I I understand that there's a lot of appeal within the community to go back to the engine era and mm. to sort of do stories in the 90s and i think that could work but i think they need to be very careful with it because i think where a lot of stories tend to come undone is they will retroactively introduce things that mm. then really muddy the canon mm. um, and make that sort of continuity of storytelling a lot more complex and a lot more entangled so I, i'm o- open to the idea of them dabbling with the past to some extent as well i just think they need to do it with a lot of care and make sure that they're not spending so much time back there that it changes everything else Mm -hmm. what made jurassic world so special and it was special among all of them was that it was both a sequel and a reboot in a way it's a new park a new place new characters with modern sentimentalities in continuity with (laughs) With the rest of the with the rest of the films and it was special in that way that it really did bridge the ground and it succeeded in that because it probably did not try to drag anybody beyond like woo into the story <laughs> to make a sense of it like, yeah they, they really kept that very sparse whereas like a full reboot could be interesting but you got to update it. it's got to be it's got to be modern and in some respects and and you'd have to yeah say we're going to go into different like what are the modern sentimentalities that are going to populate the the storytelling in this reboot as opposed to what stories were being told in the last one and certainly what was told in the original jurassic park was uh there were tales on some some tales on feminism there were some bits on how far should technology go and things like that which you know the third movie was not about (laughs) jurassic park 3 was not about any of those things yeah so what what would you know what story to be told what's what's today's story that the dinosaurs can be an analog for it's very strange (laughs) It is. I think there's always going to be the parallel between our relationship with nature, though. And I think when you look at the world we're in now, especially with things like global warming, for example, there's so many conversations to have around that relationship with nature. So I think there's there's still ways that they can tell new stories that resonate with people today, but it will take a much smarter scriptwriter than I am to work out what those stories are. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I almost don't want a fan of the franchise to make it. I kind of want, like, a filmmaker yeah. who's, like, good at making movies, who wants to make an awesome movie. Yeah. You know, anything that we're, like, the difference between Spielberg and Trevor o, Trevor o is smaller. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you had somebody just like, I, I can't wait to make a strong piece that really says something. As opposed to, you know, this film's got dinosaurs, let's make it work. <laughs> Yeah, I agree fully. I think the the issue with having a fan make it is there's the potential to be a lot of fan service. And if you're constantly stopping to smell the roses at every juncture, then you lose the pace that a mm. film like this really needs. And the scope was so big. Like, to me, the stakes have to be way smaller. Uh, the, the scope of the, yeah. the story has to come way down. The original movie wasn't a global catastrophe. It was, you know, a lethal misadventure that happens over a dark and stormy weekend. And... Uh, yeah. Because of a couple bad breaks and a few bad actors, and that was it. And uh, and it was had t- tremendous amounts of impact. The stakes were still high. That's because you're more invested in just who these characters were. 
And <laughs> it feels like the bigger and longer it gets, that you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I almost feel like an interesting direction to take Dominion in would have been to have the third act be the black market sequence and have Claire and Owen there having an encounter with either the Ferrazinosaurus or the Giganotosaurus and kind of having this big sort of climax of the third act being okay somebody else is making dinosaurs now as well and then sort of leave that open so you're still doing that smaller story but you're also showing that there's more going on this science is spreading and more people are starting to use it Mm. because i feel like that was maybe dominion's weakest point is the fact that all of these dinosaurs that we've never seen before suddenly appear and there's nothing done to explain that and that i feel like they really miss something especially when it comes to the Parasaurolophus redesign, for example. I understand why they wanted to redesign it to try and make it more accurate, but why not use that as an opportunity to show that there's other people now creating dinosaurs? These aren't the same ones from Nublar, and then that just gives you so much more that you can explore as well. Mm-hmm. Or oh, wouldn't it have been something? Because in the novel, uh, this idea that you could have a, a pet dinosaur, and there was this yeah. pet food that you could only feed the dinosaur, which is kind of... Along the lines of like the locust adaptation, but it, I, yeah. think, I think the, the the famine, the global famine that they were at risk of experiencing, would have been more fun if it had been you know as because a herd of apatosaurus walked by, they could wipe out Idaho. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> they just they're walking natural disasters in terms of just how big they are. That could have been interesting. Yeah. You just have to wipe out you know one province or or state. It's a trouble for for people. That could have been yeah, might have been more fun if it had been dinosaurs and it had been. Then we turn into Dinosaur War, where it's just an hour of the dinosaurs getting hunted down by the U.S. Army. <laughs> and, and, yeah, the trouble was they couldn't have people killing dinosaurs because nobody wants to see that. <laughs> yeah. And but you, So how do you make dinosaurs the villain, but you can't, you can't touch them? That's tough. It's, it's, it's a hard challenge to juggle. Mm-hmm. We only got a little bit of time left. Where can people find what you're up to? Yeah, so best place to follow me is Twitter, if it continues to exist, at Tom underscore Jurassic, or if not, on Instagram as well. Um, And just keep your eyes peeled for Tales from a Jurassic World, which should be airing in 2023. I am very excited about that, hopefully. It's a fun little roller coaster for fans of the franchise. That should be exciting. You know what we should do? We should quit relying on one platform. We should embrace the hashtag. Yeah. We should just have a hashtag. You Google that, and the results pop up for you. That could be fun. Uh, that, yeah. I, I, you heard it here first. I'm going to start hashtag <laughs> Jurassic. Well, I will say we did during the first year of the pandemic, we created a hashtag called hashtag stay safe, stay Jurassic, okay. which was designed to connect Jurassic fans, and it was just sharing content and things that people could engage with. So... Do go back and look at that because there's some really nice content on that. And I think it shows how the community can really come together sometimes. So it's something really nice to reflect on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that hashtag, any public post should result in a... You should get Google results from it anyhow. That, yeah. that might, be the, might be the hack we're looking for. We'll see what it happens. Might. It <laughs> might. <laughs> awesome. Also, this chapter is when Ed Regis dies. Do you have any final departing words, memories? Do you have a eulogy for Ed Regis? Ed, we hardly knew you. (laughs) Should have stayed in the car. His mistake was they all didn't run a lot faster a lot sooner. Really. They should have just gone. 
No, my, my parting words for him would be, when you think there's just one T-Rex, assume there's more. Fair enough. They're trouble. Well, thanks so much for coming. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you after all. And uh, yeah, yeah, likewise. Thanks again for, for coming on. Good luck with everything. And I can't wait to hear some of the stories. Perfect. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you to Tom Jurassic for coming on the show. You guys look him up on, on Twitter. He's got fun content to, to look at. Or not on Twitter, depending on how, how things roll out. All right. This week's text is Lex, spanning from pages 210 to 217. In a synopsis, Tim finds Lex hiding in a culvert under the road, and they climb out to find Dr. Grant. Meanwhile, Ed Regis climbs out from the boulders in which he'd been hiding, feeling a great shame for having abandoned the kids during the Tyrannosaur attack. As Regis emerges, he's tackled and eaten by the juvenile Tyrannosaurus, which pushes Grant and the kids to escape further into the park rather than following the road back to safety characters. Lex Murphy. Lex is curled up in a big one-meter drainage pipe that runs under the road on 210, where she's been hiding since the Big Rex attack. Lex has put her baseball mitt in her mouth, and she's rocking back and forth, banging her head repeatedly against the back of the pipe. Lex is badly frightened. She calls the animals aminals, which to Tim indicates that she's regressing into infantilism as an escape. She's about seven or eight years old, so for her to regress means she's now on the brink of like five or six years old. Stubborn childish and irrational she won't leave the drain she's afraid of afraid the tyrannosaurus is quote still out there and continues banging her head against the pipe she asks for daddy or for any adults suggesting she doesn't really trust tim to save them she doesn't see him as a protector but she does climb out shivering and wet covered in dried blood on her forehead and then she wonders where dr grant is admitting she'd seen him earlier this is good news because it's the first confirmation that grant isn't dead since the tyrannosaur attack she starts yelling for him on page 212. Lex has a cut on her head, but is otherwise surprisingly unharmed, we're told on page 214. And Lex again tells Grant that she's hungry. When the juvenile Tyrannosaur arrives, Grant cups his hand over her mouth to keep her quiet. And she doesn't understand it at first, but catches on on 216. She fully witnesses Regis's murder on 217. Tim Murphy. Tim is wearing the night vision goggles and can see Lex hiding in the dark culvert. And he's relieved to see that she's unhurt. Tim tries to tempt her out of the pipe with the goggles and her baseball. And when she refuses to move, Tim doesn't have a fit or complain or order her around. He just kind of plops himself down in a puddle and tells her he will just sit and wait. Now, Tim has just finished yelling at the top of his lungs, not caring whether the dinosaurs hear him or not. But now that Lax is doing it, Tim is, quote, uneasy at the noise she was making. He might bring back the Tyrannosaur in 212. Tim is banged up. His nose is swollen and painful, probably broken and his right shoulder is badly bruised and swollen. He acknowledges that they're the only ones who know about the raptors on the boat on 2.15. Although we know that Malcolm also knows. Tim's nauseated by Regis's death, and the night vision goggles fall from his head on 2.17, which alerts the Tyrannosaur to their presence, so they run. Tim picks up the goggles. He's going to keep them with him. Dr. Alan Grant. He's alive! <laughs> he has a big tear in his shirt on 2.12, we're told. He appears from back where Tim's land cruiser was at the bottom of the big coniferous tree. And Grant has been looking for the kids, and he's thankful he's found them. Grant believes he was knocked out after being kicked by the Tyrannosaur, which also resulted in his shirt being ripped open, and a large abrasion down his right chest, which was bleeding, burned when he, was, when he moved, but has since clotted and should be fine. He can't believe they're all still alive, because the Tyrannosaur should have, quote, killed them all easily. Grant says he's hungry, and that they have to make sure they report that there are stowaway raptors on the ship 
215. He doesn't believe it's safe to walk up the road back to the visitor area because it's likely that the juvenile tyrannosaur is up the road too. Their next plan is to sit and wait for someone to come and get them. And he observes the Tyrannosaurus's behavior during the Regis attack and then takes the kid's hands to escape when the Tyrannosaur notices that they are there. Ed Regis, he's shivering, and cold mud covers his hands and face, we're told on 212. He's been wedged between some rocks for a half an hour. That's how long he's been since the Rex attack. He realizes that in his panic, he hadn't been thinking clearly, knowing that his hiding spot sucked. Uh, he's still reliving the nightmare of the Rex coming towards the car, and he's still in shock, and his memory is a blur. In his escape from the car, he fell down a hill and crawled under some boulders on the slope of a hill below the road. Once safe, he recalls being utterly horrified and ashamed for running away and abandoning the kids in the Land Cruiser to face the Tyrannosaur alone. Over that 30 minutes he was down among the boulders, he remembers, fantasizing that he'd be cool and calm under pressure, be a hero, but that was categorically not the case, and he's ashamed of that. This is like uh, I can't look at myself in the mirror moment. He knew there was a chance to climb back up and help save the kids from the attack, but he just couldn't do it. He knew he should. He may have even wanted to, but he couldn't do it. He believed it was hopeless anyhow. Recall, Grant felt hopeless and couldn't think of a single thing that, they, that might save them earlier during the attack, too. He couldn't save the kids from the Tyrannosaurus, and then he rationalized that nobody will have to know about his cowardice on 213 or what actually happened, so he stayed put, trying to ignore worrying about the kids and what Hammond might say. He only emerges from the boulders because of a, quote, peculiar sensation he noticed in his mouth. His face and skin feel funny, and horrifyingly he realizes he's covered in leeches. And he starts, and he's startled from his panic to realize that Lex is yelling for someone, that she's alive. He, he realizes that he may still be able to help everyone out after all, and so cleans himself off and goes to climb up the embankment to rejoin with the survivors. That fear is still brimming at the surface, though. As soon as Lex stops yelling, he worries that the Tyrannosaur is back, second-guessing himself and thinking he's already halfway home since he's already at the bottom of the hill rather than marching back into danger. Noticing the juvenile Tyrannosaur, Regis hugs against the tree and remains as still as possible in 216, hoping to go unnoticed. And he's initially successful as the Tyrannosaur passes him and heads up the road. When attacked, he doesn't curl up in the prone position. He fights for his life. He's swinging his arms, he's yelling... He's punching the dinosaur in the snout, and he gives a gallant effort to try and live. <laughs> Tyrannosaurus. Grant believes the dark shape that darted between the cars before the t Big Rex attack was the juvenile Tyrannosaur in 215. The Tyrannosaur is very quiet in the forest, and its breathing is like that of a horse. It has a strong curved neck and a square head. It's eight feet tall, moving with the clumsy gait of a young animal, almost like a puppy, we're told on 216. And as the Big Rex, when Regis doesn't move, the Tyrannosaur doesn't see him. In attack, the Tyrannosaur roars and strikes Regis with a swing of its head and pins him on the ground with its hind leg. It's portrayed as youthful, curious, and playful. Localities. We're outside the Tyrannosaur paddock. Running under the main road is a culvert called the drainage pipe, which is one meter in diameter. As well, Regis has fallen down a small hill and climbed amongst some boulders on 212 and recalled that the road system is raised up so that riders can view over the fences and into the paddocks. This hill harkens back to the setting as described earlier. It's later described as a hill, which must be fairly large. Regis can't see what's at the top of it from the bottom. The main road, just up the main road, apparently, is the hotel on 215, uh, we're told on 215, and it's downhill from the Tyrannosaur paddock. There are high fences on either side, which would trap them if they came across the juvenile Tyrannosaur. They would be like in a killing jar. <laughs> Stylistic techniques, italics. Before, I saw him when I was in the pipe, stresses Lex with the italics. 
her specificity is still immature. And this is kind of a kind of writing a seven-year-old authentically, right? Quote, he remembered that Lex had said something that, but he hadn't stopped. He couldn't stop. He had just kept running and running on 212. And here the italics suggest he was entirely compelled to preserve his own life, that it wasn't a choice or cowardice. It was instinct. It was practically in his mouth. On 213, realizes Regis of a leech sucking him. The italics emphasize the realization, panic, and disgust are all occurring at once. And it makes me relate to Crichton in a way. For anyone who's done any creative writing through the act of writing, you sit inside your imagination, feeling and sensing as best as you can the reality of your subject. And surely Crichton felt the italics as he wrote this, imagining the same realization, panic, and disgust that Regis experiences. I once wrote a scene about a guy using a flamethrower on another person and... I think I quit writing then and there. Some of this stuff is disturbing to work with. I imagine acting is very similar, the imaginative realm that performers must embody to create. In any case, the italics, I'm sure, is what Crichton felt, not only in his mind's eye, but in his author's eye. Jesus, that was a little girl, in italics, realizes Regis. And this has consequences. All the gaslighting he was preparing to save his own reputation might be in jeopardy. He probably is feeling relief, but also incredible dread and shame again. And rightfully so, too. These italics convey a multiplicity of emotions running through Regis, in my interpretation, anyhow. I told you I was, whines Lex, after Grant inspects her for injuries, like a brat. They heard a crack in italics as a branch broke, and into the path stepped a tyrannosaur. At 2.16, this is another example of onomatopoeia, of course, and the italics suggest that it's prominent, breaking the silence. It was playing with them, Grant thought. On 2.17 is a realization that comes as a surprise inferred by these italics. The use of colon. And then Grant realized there was another shadow, superimposed on the others but not moving. Colon, a strong curved neck and a squared head. Where the first clause produces some suspense, and after the colon were given the result that we should recognize the shadow of the Tyrannosaurus. Quote, Then the sounds of the forest returned, colon, the first tentative croak of a tree frog, the buzz of one cicada, and then the full chorus on 2.16. And we get sort of a list of sounds that are returning, and if a colon does anything well, it's presenting lists. Semicolon. Lex tugged impatiently at Grant's shirt. Semicolon. She wanted to know what was happening, showing action and intent in a single sentence. Uh, M- dash. Quote, Tim was uneasy at the noise she was making, M-dash. It might bring back the Tyrannosaur, M-dash. But a moment later, he was he heard an answering shout. He knew he should go back up the road. He should try to rescue them, because he always had imagined himself as brave and cool under pressure. But whenever he tried to get out to get control of himself to make himself go back up there, M-dash, somehow he just couldn't. On 2.12. Here we have Tim showing us in parentheses, sort of, the M-dash is providing a parentheses of what Tim is worried about, that the transform might come back as a result of the shouting. His body is betraying him amidst the horror and terror. Quote, and it slowly dawned on him that something else might have happened, that the Tyrannosaur must have gone away, M-dash, or at least hadn't attacked, M-dash, and that the other people might still be alive. And here the M-dash serves as parentheses again, suggesting he's conceiving of multiple scenarios in which people survive the Tyrannosaur. Don't leave me out here, don't leave me here, you guys, M-dash, on 215, as Lex is cut off by Grant cupping his hand over her mouth. Uh, again, the M-dash can be often used as an interruption. You stupid M-dash. Back! Back! You heard me, M-dash. Back! as Regis is interrupting himself, scrambling to put his words to use, though what's the point in choosing your words against a languageless dinosaur? Not much. Exclamation. Hello, Dr. Grant! Here the exclamation suggests that uh, Lex is calling out in a shout, searching for Grant. Get away! Back off! Go on, back off! 
On 217, yells Regis at the Tyrannosaur, which gains him some space. Yeah, you heard me. Back off. Get away. Emphasis and exclamation as Regis attempts to alpha-dog the juvenile is commendable. Although, I mean, it's not going to work. Tension. And Crichton does a great job creating a spooky atmosphere with the haunting imagery in this chapter. Let's, he lets the scene build tension, and then he releases it, only to make a sudden attack on 216. The attack came from the left. Shocks and surprises you as you release the tension just a little, uh, showing that this is, you know, a well-crafted attack. It's well done. Horror. And the the haunting, horrifying conclusion of Regis's journey is captured horrifically with his yelling. He's making an effort to thwart the attack by asserting his dominance over the Tyrannosaur. It's a juvenile. He's yelling like a lion tamer. The animal's being playful. And there's some hope that this might actually work. Quote, in another few steps, he would be in hiding on 217, giving us a glimpse of hope. But the Tyrannosaur, quote, ducked its head, and Regis began to scream. No words. Just a high-pitched scream. Sends shivers down your back, eh? Quote, the scream cut off abruptly. When the juvenile lifted his head, Grant saw ragged flesh in its jaws. A horrifying end to Ed Regis. Literary techniques. We have metaphors. Quote, she seemed unhurt, and he felt a great burst of relief. On 210, suggesting that the tension and fear and worry he was carrying after the attack is lifted, as if a dam were bursting. You can imagine him giving a great sigh along with it. So that's a good metaphor. Quote, the forest around them had become deadly silent suggests that something had killed the sound, but also suggests that there's a looming agent of mortality lingering in the forest, too. And ultimately, there is. As well, the wind, quote, whines now, sort of like a ghost might in a kid's show, that low moaning sound. Haunting and spooky metaphors here. Quote, the sound floated toward them again, soft as a sigh. And again, this conjures the impression of an apparition and being haunted. Similes. Quote, and finally, when he was wedged in there like a rat between the boulders, he had calmed down a little, and he had been overcome with horror and shame because he'd abandoned those kids. Here's another comparison to a rat. First it was Nedry, and now Regis. Again, recall, you'd expect the dinosaurs to take care of things like that, is what we were told the first time we see a possum scurry across the road. Quote, it's eight feet tall, moving with the clumsy gait of a young animal, almost like a puppy. And we can imagine the playful, sloppy movements of a, of a puppy, of course. This immediately gives the Tyrannosaur less menace and more of a playful appearance. Quote, he shouted like a lion tamer, which suggests that he's being very commanding, but also that there's something performative about it as well. Again, the Tyrannosaur doesn't understand what he's saying, though this is an effort to go alpha male and dominate his attacker. Dramatic irony. Quote, the leeches crawled up your underwear. They like dark, warm places. They like to crawl right up your... Hello! <laughs> I laughed at this. Here, Crichton's covered the crude conclusion to that thought with a fun interruption that I can only imagine Michael Myers' uh, Linda Richmond character saying on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> but that's the joke. The reality is that it's Lex calling, and probably Lex sounds nothing like Linda Richmond. <laughs> Analogy. Quote, and the realization made him pull himself together in an instant, the way you get sober in an instant when the cops pull you over, and he felt better because now he knew what he had to do on 213. Now, this is a fairly outdated concept that drinking and driving is fairly commonplace, and it surely was much more so in the past. I recall an episode of Columbo, where Richard Kiley himself, yes, the famous voice of the tour here at Jurassic Park, played a deputy police commissioner who's aiding and abetting a murderer, and his alibi for the plot is that he was drunk driving, was in a drunk driving accident. In the episode, which is from 1974, he's told to take it easy on the way home or something like that. Boy, times have changed. In any case, that Crichton might use an analogy like this isn't as tasteless as it reads today, and it does a good job suggesting that Regis is, quote, sobering up 
now that he may have to face the music, so to speak. It's evocative of a change of attitude to the more serious. It's effective, but likely not an analogy that an author may use, you know, today. Dialogue. The conversation between Lex and Tim is always in conflict, and this chapter has a lot of it. There's a nice touch where Crichton says, has Lex say aminals rather than animals, and as a reader, it's easy to overlook because we skim words so quickly, interpreting while reading by almost the shape of the word rather than the actual sequence of letters. And so with all the right letters in place, one could quickly overlook this misspelling, but it's there, and it's a clever idea for Crichton to employ. We never really get the perspective of Lex in this novel, one of the few characters we spend time with, but whom Crichton doesn't share a chapter with, her narrative point of view. In this chapter, it's Tim's perspective and his attempts at influencing her so he can take her with him to escape Jurassic Park. And they quarrel over everything they say to each other. Everything is a fight. And this is Crichton writing the characters well. Discussion. Show, don't tell. As in the previous chapter, Crichton did an excellent job of showing that Tim had a concussion without saying that Tim had a concussion. And Crichton continues that tradition by showing what impact the Tyrannosaur attack has had on Lex, rather than than just saying. She regresses to using childish words like aminals. She bangs her head repeatedly against a drainage pipe. She refuses to move. She bites down on the baseball myth, all actions which, which exemplify someone who is hurt, traumatized, and scared, though Crichton doesn't just say she's traumatized and hurt. She asks for her parents knowing full well they're not out there. So this is really well done. Daddy issues. We know Tim has no love lost for his father, and we know that Lex adores her father, chiefly symbolized through her grasp of her baseball mitt. To help her face her fears, she asks if she asks Tim if, quote, Daddy is out there to protect her from the Tyrannosaur, and Tim only answers, no, Lex. In this moment of crisis and loss, they both hope for entirely different things to get them out of here. What's in a name? This is sort of the last we get of Ed Regis, and I read an interesting question on Reddit about him. Regis is Latin for of the king, uh, with the root word reg meaning move in a straight line, interpreted as, quote, direct in a straight line, or lead in a straight line, and thus someone who leads others in a straight line is a ruler, just like your elementary school measuring stick provides a straight line as well. In French, that rexy root word is more visible as regla, A regent is a ruler or a governor, and Rex is ruler too, but commonly understood to be king. Regis is named of the king, and that ties him to what we already know to be the tyrant lizard king, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. That same root word, reg, is adapted here as king and tyrant ruler. The juvenile Rex takes Ed, who is of the king, Regis. I think right knew Regis was to die by Tyrannosaurus from the very beginning, and his name reflects that. There may not be much more to read into the, the, the two of them have, you know, kind of sharing a name there or a root word in their name, but we can see that as a character, Regis was destined to meet the tyrant ruler. So what's in a name? In some cases, it's your fate. Timeline. Regis says he's been hiding in the rock for 30 minutes. We're told on 212. That puts us around 7.30 p.m. To put that in perspective, the power has been out for 30 minutes. After Ned reactivated his trap door, he slipped out into the park and was eviscerated by Dilophosaur. The Tyrannosaur escaped its paddock and destroyed two land cruises before walking off into the jungle, and Grant has reunited with the kids. Meanwhile, a herd of Apatosaurs delayed Gennaro, Sattler, and Harding in a gas-powered jeep before they came across a pack of compies. Meanwhile, Hammond and Wu decried the economic benefits of investing in pharmaceuticals, and John Arnold probably smoked a half pack of cigarettes in there too. So, a busy half hour on Isla Nublar. And then Regis gets eaten by leeches and a Tyrannosaurus on top of it all. Believe me, I know. Continuing the trope that everything Ed Regis says and thinks is wrong, he believes the kids can't be saved, 
so he doesn't bother trying. And of course, he was wrong. Before we go today, I want to say thank you again to Tom Fishenden, who you can find online as Tom Jurassic. Thank you again, Tom. I really appreciate it. It's good to meet you. And I hope, uh, hope things are going awesome over there. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Inventory, and worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too.